Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, having uh, sung songs and uh, heard a message from John to the kids, Lord, and in all of it, um, Lord, hearing some amazing words about who you are, Lord, about your word and the way that you reveal it to us. And Father, we pray this morning as we come before um, before the Bible, before your text, Lord, that we would we come before it humbly. Father, we could read the words. Um, we could study the text, uh, Lord, and we could come away um, after doing this for a lifetime with absolutely nothing if you are not present, if you are not working and revealing who you are and your truth to us. So we pray this morning, Lord, as we... As we listen, that you give us the ears. Um, as we read with our word in front of us, that you give us the eyes. And Lord, that you would be softening our hearts, uh, our new hearts, Lord, to receive your truth, that it might guide us and teach us, Lord, and give us the life that we need from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this chapter of 1 Samuel begins with those words. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Ray mentioned this a few weeks ago in his introduction uh, to this sermon series. And I wonder if you've considered what life would have been like for Israel at that time without the word of God in their lives. What would our lives be like if we didn't have the word of God? What if he had never given it to us? How would the world have turned out if after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden that God never spoke again? He just sustained creation and let the scene unfold without interaction. Would it really have been that bad? What would have happened when Cain killed Abel with God's word? Cain is cursed and removed from the family, but without it, Cain, the one who killed his brother, returns home and plays older brother to Seth and the other siblings. Who knows how that would have turned out? Would humanity have even reached a third generation? What of the flood? Here, God's word plays two roles. It judges the wickedness of humanity and brings about destruction but it also saves Noah and his family, providing a new start of sorts for humanity. Without God's word, there would have been no judgment, no flood, and no saving of the one faithful family on earth. How long, I wonder, Noah's family and his faith would have lasted in that environment without God intervening. Then what? Skipping on a few occasions because we only have so much time to hypothesize this morning. What would happen to Israel when they're enslaved to Egypt? God's word worked mightily in those times, didn't they? Ten plagues that decimated a nation, showing the power of Yahweh to the world. 
and saving the Hebrew people for himself. But of course, if the word wasn't there, nothing changes. There, are no, there would be no people of God. And in fact, without the word of God, then there wouldn't have been a revelation at Mount Sinai, no Ten Commandments, no temple, tabernacle, no sacrificial system, no prophets or priests of our God, no understanding of sin, holiness or heaven. Without God, without his word, there is no Christ on earth. Jesus is described in John as the word of God. So there would have been no incarnation. No instruction in God's love and forgiveness and holiness that we find in the Gospels. No instruction in who we are or how we are to live with one another. And every truth that we would hold dear in that world would have just been made up by ourselves. No guidance no direction, no miracles, no church, no salvation. Would it really have been that bad? I think it would have been. Without the word of God present in the world and in our history, our lives, and that of the people around us are an exercise in utter futility. Without God, humanity's path in life only seems to ever lead to destruction. From the beginning, humanity, we, have been utterly reliant on God's word to save us. Even those that don't call him Lord rely on his word, on his intervention. So why say all this? Because here we are at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 3, and we hear those words. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and it should utterly horrify us. This is a sentence that really should be the thing that haunts our dreams. These people were living without the word of God. To use a phrase from my youth, they were stuffed. Even when surrounded by Scripture speaking of the judgment of Eli and his family, it is this first short, simple verse indicating the withdrawal of God's word that should leave us trembling. This is the greatest of the judgments that we will read coming from God because later in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 28, King Saul explains that the loss of God's word is the loss of his presence. All of this because the people of Israel had turned away from God and worshipped false gods, the false gods of other nations that surrounded them. Did they even notice in the busyness of their idolatry that God had stopped speaking? It's easy for us to be able to look back on history and see what looks obvious, but sin blinds and makes deaf those who are caught up in it. Israel was undergoing a terrible judgment from God. And the curse of it is that they were utterly ignorant of their doomed situation. Now it's easy for us to cast that first stone at Israel at this point, isn't it? But the blindness 
to the movement of God due to sin is as true for us as it is and was for them. What sins are blinding us from the movements of God? Personally, as a church, as a nation. How could we even know unless God reveals that to us as well through his word? We are utterly dependent on God right from the beginning. What a sorry place Israel is in at the beginning of this chapter. What a dark place to begin a chapter and a dark place to begin a sermon. But by the time that we reach the end of this chapter, we find Israel in a totally different place. What do we find? From verse 19, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. The word of God has returned. He is active and present again with the people. There is hope again for them. The question we are left asking then is this, what in the world has happened in this chapter to so severely reverse the situation? Why has God now decided to reveal his word? Well, a sad fact is that God's action here has not been inspired at all by the actions of Israel. It does not even seem that as a nation they were crying out in the darkness. Judges ends with the words, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. No lament, no remorse, no repentance. So why? Why did God reveal himself now? Or another question, why has God ever revealed himself? In all those instances that we have spoken about in biblical history, what brought about his word? At none of those points was it deserved. Many of them it was never called out for or wanted. So why? Love. Love for his creation, love for his people, and love for his own name. He knows that without him we are bound for catastrophe, and he does not desire that for his creation. He would have us with him. Love is why he continually gives us his word in power, a word undeserved and a word bound up in grace. He reveals himself by means of a prophet, someone that will speak the will and desires of God to the people, who will act as a messenger of God to men in both the words that they have and the lives that they live before them. Now Moses was the last national prophet before Samuel. He was the leader 
of the nation during times of significant change. They had no king. Though Moses, through Moses, God formed the nation and instituted the ways that they were to live as a people. He provided them with guidance and judgment in their personal lives and in their national life. But Moses was also imperfect. He sinned. He misled the people at times. And rather significantly, while the nation continued on, Moses died. And he left them profitless. However, in Deuteronomy, in Moses' final words to Israel, in chapter 18, he says this concerning their future in the promised land. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me and among you, from among you, and from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And here now in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, what do we have? But a young Israelite boy being raised and called by God to be his prophet among the people. Samuel was to be the leader of the nation. As Moses was to lead the people in the ways of God, knowing his heart and mind. A man that would go before the people, revealing the will and character of God to them. As we will see, though, Samuel is like Moses in many ways. He also will sin. He will make mistakes and mislead, and he will ultimately die, leaving the people once again. It is for this reason that Samuel is really only a partial fulfilment of the prophecy from Deuteronomy. Ultimately, it is Christ who will fulfill this prophecy to its uh, completion, raised up from among the people in Israel to lead and go before them as a prophet, as a priest, as a king, without sin, forever. Always revealing the word of God to them, bringing the word of God to them. Through him, we see the fullness of God expressed to us in his words and life, leading us, me and you, towards God forever. Now, we may be tempted to think that because we have the Bible, this book, we are safe from the worries of this chapter, that we can't be without the word of God. We are not dependent on a prophet to deliver the word to us. Each of us, after all, is secure in the knowledge that we have two or three Bibles each. We will never be saved, uh, starved sorry, from his word with the banquet that we have. But to have God's word is so much more than simply having words on a page, isn't it? We can have the Bible and even read it and still see nothing. 
We can eat and eat and never be satisfied. Or worse yet, and closer to Israel's condition, we can have no appetite or desire for his word at all. We too can feel the loss of God's word in our lives. You and I are as dependent on the provision of a prophet of the word of God as Israel was. But ours is in heaven, leading the people of God forever and through the Spirit always at work, revealing the word of God to us. So, if the role of a prophet is to reveal God to us, what does Samuel reveal about God in this passage? First, we see Samuel reveals that God is gentle and kind. Look at how he calls Samuel. I don't know how you guys read kids' books if you've ever done it, not for your own pleasure, but usually for the children around you. I personally use voices for all the different characters. Someone like Eli would have a soft and breathy voice of an elderly man. Samuel would have a high and youthful voice, as high as I can manage anyway. But God, God always have, has that booming voice, a voice filled with thunder. Isn't it common to see God like this? After all, he is the sovereign creator of the universe. The songs say he is so big, so strong, so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. So, of course, he always sounds like he's talking into a megaphone. But here with Samuel, who is young and described as having not yet heard uh, spoken to the Lord, and not to mention asleep, God calls the name his name with a voice loud enough to wake him, but gentle enough to be mistaken for an old man in an adjacent room. Here is this same sovereign creator whose voice is described to melt mountains by the Psalms, gently and intimately calling the name of a child to come into his service. This is Samuel's first impression of the God that he will serve for the rest of his life. Furthermore, God is patient in his calling to Samuel. When I call Grayson my son to me, I often find myself calling his name more than once. But for me, after the second time, I begin to grow frustrated. After the third time, even more so. My voice grows louder, sterner, grumpier, scarier. No, it's hard to imagine. God calls Samuel's name four times, and at no point does he grow impatient or frustrated or scarier. He patiently waits while a young boy grows to understand what is happening under the instructions of Eli. So familiar are we with the understanding that the powerful care little for the humble. Yet here the most powerful is humble. 
in this gentleness? Is this gentleness an aspect of your understanding of who God is? Have you noticed his gentleness in your own life? Each of us has a story like Samuel's where God has given us a gentle revelation of his nature. When you called Jesus Lord for the first time and you placed your faith in him, was it not because he was calling your name, just like Samuel, loud enough to wake you up, but with gentleness and patience? Isn't he gentle and patient with us all the time? slowly showing himself to us as we grow in our understanding, not under Edelai's tutelage, but under Christ's. At no point does he give us more revelation than we can bear. If we saw the fullness of his glory, we would unravel. Now, our testimonies don't all look the same. Some, can look, uh, some of us can look and sound Uh, Our testimonies look and sound like God may have been harsh. But I can assure you that it's simply because he needs to speak a little louder to some than others. He is as gentle as he needs to be. But while gentle with his revelation, his word is not always, always an easy thing to receive. It is not always light. Sometimes it is heavy and difficult to bear. Sometimes it is, a gentle revel- uh, it is a gentle revelation that we need to see, but we don't want to see. Imagine for a moment what it would be like living in the confines of your own home, but in total darkness for a whole year. You, kids, your family, your pets... Eating, drinking, working, playing, cleaning the best of you can, all in total darkness for all those months. It would be tricky. What a relief when you get to the end of it and that light comes back on. You can see again, you can live again. But what a double-edged sword that light would also be. You remember that time you lifted up the couch or looked between the couch cushions for the first time. You can imagine that, but everywhere in the house. The light comes on and you come face to face with the squalor that you've actually been living in. Every surface, every corner filled with dirt and debris of all sorts. The marks on the walls where your hands have touched them to guide yourself around. You look to the pets. And you see why the budgie has been so quiet for the last six months. The light is a wonderful thing, a blessed thing. But what a burden it can sometimes bring. God is light. His word is, as the psalmists say, a light unto our path. But the word also comes with a heavy burden at times. It reveals our sinful nature and our state and more as we see in the first word of prophecy given to Samuel, it reveals God's own displeasure with sin and the consequences that come with it. 
how much more preferable it is to listen and read and speak of God only in terms of mercy and love and forgiveness and avoid the aspects of his nature like holiness and judgment. To only have the light of his word set on dim for a more romantic faith. It's easy, it's far easier to bear that way. But we have only to look at our text from today to see that God's words and judgment concerning sin are very, very real and present within scripture and at times very heavy. See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. The punishment about to befall Eli and his sons was not going to be a light slap on the wrist. But so great a punishment that even those who hear it or hear of it will get the shivers. This is not a word that can be ignored. It is also a heavy word for poor young Samuel to receive the first word that he is to share with anyone in his role. Do you notice the affectation Eli used in addressing Samuel? In verse 16, Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, my son. Samuel has grown up since leaving Hannah in the temple with Eli as his master. And they have grown in affection for one another. And now Samuel, having spoken to the Lord, has a word of judgment for this man. Is it any wonder that Samuel was afraid to tell Eli? They didn't want to. What a heavy weight the word of God can be at times. How often, even in our brief look into biblical history, it was judgments of God that were being delivered. And it was a heavy word each time Cain was cursed to leave the only family on earth. The world was flooded. Everyone but one family destroyed. Egypt decimated. Sin was judged. Yet in each instance... How often these heavy words also came with salvation for the faithful. For Seth, for Noah and his family, for Israel. Here in 1 Samuel, the word is heavy against Eli as God meters out his justice. But more than that. God is doing it for the good of the people and for his own name. 
cleaning house to install a new priest and prophet to guide the people into the future, into relationship with him. For us pastors, for the elders and for the preachers here, this is a word for us, isn't it? To take courage, to trust in the Lord's goodness when delivering the whole word of God. We can be tempted to protect people from the heaviness of the word of God at times, to safeguard them or perhaps safeguard ourselves. But God has plans for leading his people in ways that we cannot see. And often it is a heavy word that will save the faithful. We must preach wholly what is given to us, the light and the heavy, and trust in him who is good. And church, this is a word for you. Beware those who give only a light word. They may rob you of God's goodness. So what have we seen of God in this chapter? We've already spoken of how God has been gracious in returning his word to Israel, despite them not changing one iota. We have spoken of a sovereign God dealing gently and patiently with a young boy. And we see of the judgment that is handed out against a man. How do you go reconciling these seemingly contradictory characteristics of God? That he can be gracious to Israel, patient with Samuel, and yet damning to Eli. And that with all exception, with the exception of Eli, none of it was deserved. Israel sinned. Samuel was a young boy, but he was a regular young boy, and I'm sure sinned along the way. They deserved punishment too. Yet God was gracious and gentle with them, and not to Eli. Does God simply choose some and not others? In Exodus 33, Moses is asking, pleading with the Lord on Mount Sinai that he might know him, that he might know his ways and see his glory. And the Lord says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And this is the name that he gives to him. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God, according to his own goodness, chooses. Eli said it best after he heard the word, the judgment of God come from the mouth of the one he called son. What did he say? He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. 
After spending time this week considering these things, I came home and shared with Catherine that this text left me unnerved, shaking within. Who am I that I should receive a word of grace in my life instead of a judgment for the sins that I have committed? I didn't earn it, and God was not bound to give it. I trembled to know that my salvation hangs on a single thread. That God chose me simply because it was according to his good will to do so. This was a fear of the Lord. The size of his goodness shook me. He is good in ways that I cannot comprehend or understand, and I felt the size of myself and a little more of the size of him, and there was a vast difference between them. To know that we cannot presume upon the mercy of God but that he chooses to give it, and that he does. You and I have received this word because he chose to give it to you, not because he had to, because it was a part of his good will. He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you have been at work. Lord, in everyone here as you were in me. Lord, revealing to us some truth of who you are for what we are ready for, at least. We give thanks, Lord, that you have taken such great care of us, of this world, of of this people. Lord, that time and time again through history, you stepped in with your word to guide us, to direct us, to save us. Left to ourselves, there was nothing we would not have lasted. How many times you needed to save us even within those first, that first book of Genesis. Yet, Lord, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to send your son the word. You didn't have to reveal it to us in our own private testimonies, Lord, in each of our stories. You didn't have to act, but you chose to. Lord, thank you. I pray that you continue to build everyone else up here in a knowledge of what that means for the rest of our lives, that we may honour you and glorify you as you deserve. 
and spend the rest of eternity to do so. And Lord, that you would do so as well for our children. Lord, if it is according to your good will, we pray that you would show yourself to them. In Jesus' name, amen.